Welcome, everybody. If anybody is new here today, I'm Jason Coker. I'm one of the co-ministers here at the church. And uh, before we get into the really important things that I have to say, <laughs> a couple of announcements. One of the things I get to do as one of the co-ministers is commandeer times when we're not supposed to be making announcements and go ahead and announce some things that are, I think, very important. And that is, of course, that Janelle and I have really enjoyed hearing how things are going with the dinner and dialogue groups. It's been really fun to just hear about uh, those of you who are gathering in these groups, how you're connecting with each other in ways that you haven't been able to connect up to this point, and how that is really sparking new life in you and in these new relationships that you're building. So if you have not yet signed up for a dinner and dialogue group, I want you to know that there are more groups that are starting this week. So we have a group that meets every night of the week except for Saturday starting this week. So this week, uh, the Downtown Oceanside group starts on Tuesday night, which is hosted by the Dwyer Vosses. I didn't tell uh, Ron that I was going to call him out today, but there he is. He's a very nice gentleman who will welcome you into, into his home and feed you and not be mean to you at all, I promise. Uh, so if, you, if Tuesday night's good for you, I would recommend you check out their group. And then the Friday night group also starts this week. That's the Fire Mountain group, which is hosted by Stephanie Hendrick. I don't see Stephanie. That's okay. But she also is a fantastic human being. So if Friday night works for you, then I'd encourage you to do that. Or you can jump into any of the groups that have already started. That's totally okay. They're only meeting three times, right? This is the way this works. You show up at somebody's house for three dinners or hors d'oeuvres or whatever, like, you know, refreshments they're doing, and you get to know each other. You have a nice dialogue. We do this three times, and then we have, of course, the American High Holy Days that begin on Thanksgiving, and we all, like, lose the ability to think about anything else, right? <laughs> so if you want to sign up for one of those groups, use your bulletin that you received when you came in. Just flip it over on the back, write your name and your uh, email address, phone number, that sort of information. Tell us that you're interested in a group. On your way out today, you'll notice on the left-hand side as you leave, there's an offering box. You don't just have to put money in that box. If you want, just stick your bulletin with your sign-up sheet into that box, and then we will reach out and get you all the details. All right, so that's my big announcement. Uh, on to the really important stuff. Can we have, do we have a picture up here? All right, so this is obviously... This is obviously the important stuff. That is Otis Roberts, Coker Carton. Uh, and yes, I'm now a grandfather. Everybody in my life, including Tindo, just a few minutes ago, suddenly thinks it's hilarious to call me grandpa. <laughs> like, this is... This is the thing that I've noticed immediately out of the gate. I, last week, I'm, for, I think some of you know, last week uh, I was out of town because I'm back in school. And so I was on campus for a week with my cohort. And I'm the oldest person in my cohort, which is also an interesting dynamic. And I texted them all on Monday morning to let them know that Otis was born and that I might be a little bit late. And when I walked in on Monday morning after being with uh, our family that early that morning, uh, they they all just loved the opportunity to call me grandpa, uh, which here's the here's the surprising part. I don't mind. Like it feels surprisingly good to be called grandpa. Maybe it's because I've always sort of been mistaken as younger than I really am, and suddenly I'm relishing the opportunity to seem like a grown human being. Uh, 
Or maybe it's that, for me, Otis represents what I think children and now perhaps grandchildren often represent for us, and that is uh, sort of the ushering in of the new. I'm very acutely aware uh, that Otis is sort of new wine, right? Two weeks ago, I preached on that passage where Jesus talked about not putting new wine into old wineskins. And I am suddenly aware that I am an old wineskin, which is good because it means that what I contain oftentimes is good, right? It's well-aged, but it also means that we're making room for what's new. Today, I want to continue our series on conversations with Jesus by looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. You pull it up on your smartphone, or if you have an actual Bible, you can use that too. If not, we're going to go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. But we've been taking a look at passages in the Gospels where Jesus engages in a kind of conversation with people and what what we can learn from those conversations. So today we're going to look at a familiar passage, but before we do, I want to ask you just to pray for a moment with me and for me, if you would. God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather again, to gather around these words that provide us with inspiration and challenge uh, and space to think and reflect and to feel in ways that shape us and form us into the kinds of people that you have designed us to be. We ask that today that we would wholeheartedly give ourselves to that process of, of being shaped into something new, being formed into the kind of people that, that you hope us to be, that you want us to be, that you've created us to be so that we can live in a world that looks a bit more like what you created it to be. We ask that you would help us to be part of that process today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23, we find Jesus getting into trouble again. By the way, if it weren't abundantly clear that I am getting old, here's another example of that. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 says, One Sabbath, he, that being Jesus, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, what are they do, or what they are doing is, is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, like I said, this is a bit of a familiar passage. I know for a lot of folks, the story here, of course, is Jesus and his disciples are walking through some grain fields. And as they are, they participate in what is a a time-honored and lawful tradition in ancient Judaism, that is, for the poor walking through grain fields to glean from the fields to eat of themselves because they're hungry. 
This is actually carved out as a legal uh, protection in the book of Leviticus where people who are poor can glean from the fields, which literally means just stripping the heads of grain off of the grain stalks, maybe like rubbing them between your hands to shuck those grains until you're down to the kernels and then to eat them. It's sort of a way of eating, you know, uh, bread, right? That hasn't been ground and, you know, yeast added to and baked and all that good stuff. You're sort of not getting that whole process of baking, but you're still getting the nourishment. Workers in the fields back then would often do this on their lunch break. They would, uh, when they would stop and they would take a break because they were hungry and they were literally like harvesting the fields for the landowner, they would be allowed, again, because of this sort of legal protection, they would be allowed to stop and strip the heads of grain off the stalks of wheat and, you know, shuck them between their hands. And then they would often roast them over a fire. So it, you know, got a little bit closer to being like the experience of eating something, you know, processed and cooked. Uh, this would have been a very familiar practice in Jesus's day, in other words. The problem is Jesus and his disciples are doing this on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, central teaching in ancient Judaism, it is literally a protected space of rest. You could argue that there's no more important law in Judaism than keeping the Sabbath. This idea that after working, after putting time and effort into creating the world, the way that we do, right, all week long, giving ourselves, toiling, suffering even to make something good that like God, we would take a day to rest. This is considered a central practice in Judaism, obviously even today. And Saturday is the Sabbath, the day that they will rest, a day when if they're very strict in Judaism, they won't even turn lights on or off in order to avoid work. So sacred is rest in the Jewish tradition that they will uh, uh, abandon all kinds of modern creature comforts in order to honor this notion that resting from work is part of the way that we honor the sense in which we were created in the image of God. It's incredibly important. But here's Jesus on the Sabbath and his disciples walking through the grain fields doing work on the Sabbath. In the strictest interpretations of the law, Jesus and his disciples are breaking the law three times because they are literally engaged in an act of harvesting when they pluck the heads of grain. And then they're engaging in an act of threshing when they rub those grains between their hands. And then lastly, they're engaging in the act of cooking, right? When they roast them over a fire or, you know, gather them together. In other words, they're, they're really breaking the Sabbath on this particular day. And this, of course, causes a bit of a controversy for those who are watching and whose interpretation of the law is very strict. This is a debate in Judaism at the time. The Sabbath is incredibly important. So how do we keep it? What kind of work is acceptable work in the Sabbath? What's legitimate work? Because of course, on any given day, you can't not work. 
On the Sabbath, you're going to like roll out of bed and you're going to get up and you're going to walk into your kitchen and perhaps you're going to eat food that had been prepared the day before so that you don't have to cook on the Sabbath. But even the act of getting up and going into the kitchen and gathering that food and eating it is a kind of work. And that, of course, is the most ridiculous, mundane example. What happens when something goes wrong on a Sabbath day? What happens when a loved one becomes sick? And then attending to their needs is real work. What happens when there's a, a catastrophe or an accident on a Sabbath day? What happens when you know somebody is injured and needs to be taken for medical care? What happens when a storm blows through and knocks over your house? Uh, isn't it work to like extricate people from the rubble? What is legitimate work on the Sabbath if God has told us to rest? And so it's understandable that for ancient Jews who were working very hard to maintain their ritual purity in order to see God restore them in the wake of their Babylonian captivity, that they would interpret laws in a very strict way. The Sabbath is good. Jesus is not denying that. This is in some ways just another version of the New wine, old wineskins dilemma. The old container, the container that holds on to old wine is this tradition of Sabbath. We need that. I don't know about you, but by the end of the week, I'm tired. I'm spent. It seems like the older I get, the closer I am to death, the more aware I am that I don't have much time left and I need to work even more. And that's just my particular sickness. Maybe it's not yours. But rest is good and important. And in a world that is frenetic and competitive and oppressive, we need to rest. And it's extraordinarily helpful when we have constructs of that, traditions, rules, practices that say on these days we're not going to work. So Sabbath then is good. But sometimes life breaks that old container. Sometimes no matter how good the rules, no matter how good the practices, no matter how good the traditions, life comes along and challenges those containers, those constructs that we created that otherwise would be good. If you're starving and it's the Sabbath, it's probably okay to work, to find yourself some food. If somebody is sick on the Sabbath, it's probably okay to attend to them, to help them find healing. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus got into trouble for all the time. Most of the time when Jesus is being challenged by those folks who strictly interpret the law, it's because he is doing something good and necessary and important on this incredibly important day. In a sense, Jesus is sort of saying not only is it good to feed hungry people or heal sick people on the Sabbath, there's no better day than a day that's created to honor our humanity than to feed hungry people, than to heal sick people. And so by doing this, Jesus enters this debate. 
He enters into this very Jewish discourse, this dialogue about how to honor the Sabbath, what is legitimate work and illegitimate work. And Jesus offers his summary here in verse 27 when he says, the Sabbath was made for humankind. Humankind was not made for the Sabbath. This is just really good moral reasoning. What do we do when we have good rules, good laws, good traditions that are meant good things for us, but those things somehow get in the way of our life, get in the way of our healing, get in the way of our restoration, get in the way of our flourishing? Jesus says, well, it's simple. That tradition, that practice, that belief was made for us. We weren't made for it. And this is sort of a fundamental error that we often make in religion. We come to believe that we were made for the religion. That whatever the rules or traditions or beliefs or doctrines or constraints of that religion are, we have to submit to them because we serve those constructs. Jesus says that is not right. The rule is those constructs were made for us. Those religious traditions and practices were made to serve our needs. Those breaks and beliefs and doctrines and rituals and practices, every single one of them was made so that you and I could flourish to live good healthy lives of well-being. And at some point, at any point, if those rituals or practices or traditions no longer serve our well-being, then it's okay to break them. Christianity was made for you and me. We were not made for it. This is not necessarily new. Jesus is offering his take on an old debate. And later in the rabbinic tradition, they would develop exactly this principle called pekuach nefesh, which means literally in Hebrew, watching over a soul. Pekuach nefesh would become the rabbinic principle for interpreting the law. And the question then became, does this interpretation of the law, this interpretation of the Torah the, or the Tanakh or this particular practice or ritual, does it help us watch over a person's soul? This would be a great question to ask of anything. Does this rule, does this law, does this practice, does this habit in our lives? Does it help us watch over each other's souls? Or does it help us crush them? Does it preserve or restore or heal life in some way? If it does, then it takes precedent over the law, the tradition, the belief. We see this happening in our community uh, all the time. And the latest example that for me is particularly frustrating is uh, just yesterday, 
a couple of LGBTQ rights organizations and an organization called Trans Family Services hosted uh, what they called a Boo Bash in San Diego in Hillcrest. And the whole point of the Boo Bash was to create a family-friendly costume party to reach out to families with trans children and youth in order to give them a supporting environment. And the flyer for the Boo Bash was shared on an online bulletin board called Peach Jar, and Peach Jar, of course, gets blasted out to parents throughout the school district, and parents in the Encinitas Unified School District were livid that a flyer promoting a trans event was being shared on their bulletin. And so on October 11th, at the Encinitas Union School District board meeting, a whole host of people showed up and made comments public comments that were not only transphobic, they were incredibly ugly and harmful to trans people and trans youth. And this is, I think, an urgent problem in our community. Friends, this is an old wineskins, new wine dilemma. This is a, was humankind made for this or was this made for humankind moment? You have heard it said that people are born either men or women. But I say to you that humankind was not made for gender constructs. Gender constructs were made for humankind. And when, when we insist on any gender construct that leads to putting people at risk, then we have placed those things out of order. We know, for example, that LGBTQ youth who have one, one, one accepting adult in their lives are 40% less likely to attempt suicide. We also know that they are 50% less likely to attempt suicide if their pronouns, their preferred pronouns, are used and respected. This is exactly what we're talking about. This is exactly what this passage is about. What do we do with our old containers, our old constructs? Those containers and constructs and beliefs and habits and rituals and patterns of life that served us well for a period of time have now become an occasion to harm and hurt and oppress other people. How do we negotiate between those two things? Because the dilemma is this. Old containers are good. Old wine is good. I said this two weeks ago. They serve us well when they serve us well. Traditions and practices help keep us in good rhythms of life, good patterns of life, and ultimately help keep us from killing ourselves and sometimes from killing others. But we also need change. We need change when those containers no longer serve our well-being. Religion exists partly to give us exactly this tool, to know how to navigate between the old and the new, to know how to move from old constructs and ideas and beliefs and practices into new ones that now serve us better. 
The problem is when we expand religion to a set of eternal beliefs and traditions that can never change, or when we reduce religion to an individual personal relationship with a cosmic boyfriend in the sky, then we have converted religion into a totalizing system of oppression that cannot meet the actual needs of real people. And this is the crisis of Christianity today. I love this quote from Hannah Arendt, who is the 20th century philosopher. She said, the aim of totalitarian education has never been to instill convictions, but to destroy the capacity to form any. Listen, religion at its worst is a totalitarian system of education that says here is what you must believe and do and be, period. That is not the point. The best expression of religion, the kind that I think we see here in Matthew 2, is the kind that doesn't tell us what to believe and what to think and how to act. It's the kind that forms us into the sorts of people who can morally reason and form convictions that serve human needs in a constantly changing world. And when we do that, when we outsource our moral formation to an ancient set of beliefs and practices and do not allow for people to form their own convictions, then we create communities that are genuinely dangerous. And you know, look no further than the current political environment in the United States. Religion has an incredibly important and powerful place to play in this. Without this, without the ability to form good, strong, moral convictions that understand the tension between old wine and old wineskins and new wine and new wineskins, then we are without any kind of ability to address the biggest, most important challenges of our society. I'm not saying everybody has to be religious, but I am saying that religion practiced well gives us an incredibly effective way of coming to these conclusions, meeting these real needs. One of the purposes of religion is to form us into genuinely good people who have the capacity to form genuinely good convictions that serve the real needs of people, not the needs of religious systems or legal systems or political systems. Every one of those systems make terrible masters. We were not made for Christianity. We were not made for American politics. We were not made for American law and policy. Those things, every one of those things were made for us. Every one of them, including Christianity, makes a terrible master, but can make a very good servant. if we're willing to be formed into the kinds of people that God created us to be. And we do that 
like Jesus by engaging in the debate, by entering into the dialogue, by being part of the community discourse around what to do with trans children and youth in our school systems, and not hiding and pretending that those controversies don't exist. The trouble is that uh, life always breaks our containers, always breaks our rules, always breaks our systems. And precisely because we have killed ourselves Monday through Friday just trying to earn a living, we often just don't feel like we have the bandwidth to engage in these difficult things. And that's why I think faith can be so useful to us, so powerful. It connects us to a sense that there is a transcendent good beyond the mundane difficulties of our daily lives. That somewhere beyond these controversies and these aggressions, there is a source of goodness that empowers us and propels us forward. And I know that asking anybody to believe that is asking a lot. But when I come here and I sing with you and I pray with you, and when I hear Tindo share what they did today, when I hear some of you lead us in communion, I am persuaded all over again that there just might be something beyond all this. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to think and to feel, to slow down and to reflect, to give and to receive, and to listen and to speak, all of those little rhythms in our lives that make us human. In the midst of those rhythms, we pray that you would grant us a sense of your presence. That we would have the courage to move past the old wineskins and embrace what's new. While at the same time, honoring what's good. Recognizing that the traditions and rhythms that have served us well might continue to do so. We ask that you would give us the courage and the grace to stand in that tension, to take what is old and good forward and to embrace what is new and good and move forward. We're thankful that you are always present in the midst of that struggle and giving us the courage to, to engage it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that amazing message today, Jason. We just have a couple of ways 
for you all to get involved if you like what's happening here. The first, Jason already talked about at length, but I'll throw in my two cents as well. I've been at one of these dinner and dialogue groups just last week. It's just such an amazing way to get to know somebody more. Because, you know, here on Sundays, it's hard to really connect. You know, you come in, you come out, it's fast. So if you really want to go deeper with people in your surrounding area, Monday through Friday, Sunday, we have an opportunity for you. Even if you've missed two and you just want to go to one, it's okay. Just come when you can. We're really trying to see how this all works for the future as well. So join us for that. Next up, we have our book club on Thursday. Our book this month is How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace. It's a really important book about how to engage with people who we might consider our enemies. Again, book club happens every first Thursday of the month, so join us this Thursday. And then last, on November 13th, we turn 147 years old. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Our church uh, started back in 1875 when 13 people met in a one-room schoolhouse. And eventually they came here. They built this church from the ground up, the pews you're sitting in today. So on the 13th, we're going to celebrate that with some cake after church, get to know each other a little more and have some fun. And lastly, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to support us with your gifts, your time, your donations, you can do that online. You can do that in the box out there. And uh, yeah, we need that to survive and thrive. So as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about, man, what construct do I need to let go of? Right? What construct is not healthy in my life possibly? So I just want to encourage you this week, maybe investigate for yourself. What's one construct that I might need to challenge a little bit, that I might need to let go of? Then on the other side of that, what's one construct that maybe I need to adopt in my life, that I need to build a habit for? Because ultimately, I think we need to make this stuff practical, right? So that's my hope for all of us this week. So may the peace of God be with you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs>